Hey everybody, welcome back to Campaign HQ. I'm David Pluff. Quite an eventful week in American politics. We're now on Thursday, September the 26th, and we're about 48 hours into a full-blown impeachment storm. And clearly, um, my one caution there is, we don't know how this is going to play out, either the impeachment inquiry and, and maybe eventual proceedings themselves, or what impact they have on the election, either primary or general. This is uncharted waters. Um, Nixon and Clinton both went through impeachment proceedings, but that was in their second term. So we've never, since Andrew Johnson back in the 1860s, and I don't think we should draw many lessons from that day, this is the first time in, in modern times we've had a president go through an impeachment proceeding during their first term heading into re-election. So I think that uh, what's most important from my standpoint is that the House of Representatives and then ultimately the Senate treat this um, with care and respect um, because this is as serious as things get in our country. I doubt the White House will treat it with the same level of seriousness and respect. And so they'll try and turn it, I think, very quickly into witch hunt part two. But obviously, um, this is going to be something that uh, affects the campaign over the coming weeks, if, if not months. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see how our Democratic candidates out on the campaign trail deal with this. You know, I think the other major event of the week is we're starting to see uh, what often happens is in races is the polling. And, and again, I want to caution people to leap to too many conclusions based on polling. But when you see enough of them, there's generally a trend. And, and what it shows is in Iowa and in New Hampshire, in the places where the campaign is really um, happening, where the candidates are spending their time on the ground, where voters are really dialed in and paying attention, where the candidates are advertising, you're starting to see a departure from the race in those states in the national polls. So in the national polls, Joe Biden, if you look at the aggregate average, still holds a pretty healthy lead, um, depending on the poll, Warren's in second or, or Sanders is in second. But in Iowa, we've seen um, a surge of momentum for Elizabeth Warren. And we've seen the same thing in New Hampshire. There was even a poll in California showing Warren surging in the lead. So clearly, uh, this is a time of great Warren momentum. Um, and my guest today is Joe Rosepars, who is the chief strategist for Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And we're going to talk to him about the momentum they've been able to build to date, why that's happened, how they plan to build on it, the kind of campaign they're putting together. Uh, and as Elizabeth Warren looks more and more like a plausible nominee, I think more and more voters and Democrats are going to be asking even more pointed questions about her ability to be Donald Trump in the general election. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. Uh, Joe Rosepars is someone who was really one of my first meetings when I signed on to manage Barack Obama's presidential campaign. We knew we needed to build an internet first campaign. We didn't have a lot of support from the traditional political establishment. So we needed to scale that at the grassroots level. And, you know, technology was really just becoming a force in politics. And I talked to Joe, who had uh, helped lead some of Howard Dean's efforts in 2004 and started a digital consulting firm. And, and we brought Joe on to, to lead our digital efforts. And uh, he played such a huge role in helping us not just raise money, which I think a lot of people focused on, but helping build the organization and the tools to allow average citizens to work on behalf of Barack Obama. Uh, he came back and played a similar leadership role in 2012. Now he signed up to help Elizabeth Warren get to the White House. And so I think there's no hotter candidate right now in the field than Elizabeth Warren. So I think it's a really good time to hear from her campaign leadership and for all of you listening uh, to get a better sense of their theory of the case and the kind of operation they're putting together to not just win the nomination, but win the White House. Okay, we're joined by Joe Rosepar, senior strategist for the surging Elizabeth Warren campaign. Joe, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. 
So we're going to spend most of our time today talking about the race and your pathway to the nomination and, and the presidency. But given what's going on in Washington, uh, and I guess in Ukraine, I just wanted to get your opening thoughts. Uh, if you guys in the Warren campaign have a sense yet about how this not I don't want to talk so much about the general election, but how you think this may affect the Democratic nomination fight or not? Well, as you know, Elizabeth Warren came out for impeachment on the heels of the Mueller report, having read the whole thing and seen the obvious crimes laid out in the case for impeachment laid out uh, right there. So we found in April that being very clear about that, the fact that the president needs to be held accountable and that the Congress needs to act is a position that Democratic primary voters care about and appreciate, but also that you can take that position and take whatever the perceived political risks are of taking it and still be able to do the things that um, you want to do to run the kind of campaign that you want to run. So we came out for impeachment uh, as one of the first on the Friday after the Mueller report came out. And then on Monday, we introduced our student debt forgiveness plan. And on Monday night, went out and uh, did a CNN town hall and, and called to eliminate the Electoral College. So we've been able to build the kind of campaign we want to do on the things that Elizabeth Warren has decided she wants to lead on. But she's also been able to show the kind of leadership she'll bring as president with the things that have been coming at her. Well, I want to spend plenty of time on the other eye in this race, which is Iowa. But is your sense that this now, and you know, maybe you guys will utilize this because you were the first, but does this become a big part of the day-to-day campaign between now and the early states? Is it too early to know? What's your sense of that? I think there's a question of sort of which day-to-day. There's the day-to-day in Washington, and there's the day-to-day of the media scrum, you know, when she holds an avail after an event. But the questions that come in those contexts and, and on cable news tend to be different than the questions that come from the voters and, and people um, raising their hands and pulling pulling the tickets at our at our town halls and, and other types of events. So it is there, and it's something that she's very clear and forthright that she thinks the president needs to be held accountable uh, for both what he did about the 2016 election and in the cover-up after, um, but then also for uh, his apparent attempts to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 election. But also, she is answering all of the questions. She's done over 130 of these town halls, and people have very real day-to-day pocketbook concerns that they're bringing about their student loan debt, about their health care, about their retirement, uh, that that's what she hears about from you know from folks. So I think it will be part of the conversation, um, but I think uh, a wise campaign uh, is one that is able to both stay on um, the things that they want to be talking about, but also be responsive to the concerns in the news. And obviously, the the president doing live active crimes to rig the future election is a kind of a big deal. And uh, we're making sure that we're clear on that. And, and she's taking a, a leadership role in, in making sure that her voice as a leader in the party is heard about what folks in, in the House specifically ought to be doing. Yeah, the live active crimes part, I think we should not forget this isn't about which party gets advantage or not. But uh, thanks for that. So I want to get to the race. Those of you that may know you or remember you from the Obama campaigns know you as a brilliant digital strategist who played such an important role in helping him win twice. Now you're playing a broader role as senior strategist. So before we jump into the race, let's talk a little bit. It'd be probably be helpful for our listeners to understand what does that mean? You're Elizabeth Warren's senior strategist. So what are you responsible for in the campaign? Yeah, so the title is actually chief strategist, and it's a little bit of everything across the whole organization. So I'm one of the few people who are uh, come from the outside in a consultant role and capacity, but have a mission to basically help the organization build an in-house team that can handle the creative, the media buying, the polling and analytics and research 
uh, as well as the organizational capacity to build and sustain and feed a grassroots movement, not just in the early states where we obviously have a, a high staff to volunteer ratio, but in all the other places where grassroots organization is going to be there, be cultivated and be material and um, robust before any staff hits the ground or any media hits the airwaves or, or uh, digital. That's a helpful overview. So I guess it's all on you, my friend. <laughs> well, uh, <is> well, <laughs> well, I mean, that's the cool thing here is that I think in terms of other past campaigns that, that you and I have been a part of and others, the balance of um, control and leadership is inside the campaign among people who are there and tightly knit together uh, in a way that um, hasn't hasn't really been pushed to this extent before. And that means that you can pilot organizational strategy, but also organizational culture um, and priorities in a way that isn't isn't the same, you know, in a campaign, especially down the ballot in House and Senate campaigns, where it, it's more like a balkanized set of consultants. We have a real uh, great, diverse uh, group of people who are all in and in it for the right reasons and, and who are able to build an organization that reflects the candidate's values, but also reflects the efficiency and the sort of willingness and, and requirement to honor the folks chipping in 10 and $20 at a time because because that's how we're getting our, our funds. So I do want to come back to how you're building your organization, which I think is unique, and we'll talk about that. But let's jump into the state. So, you know, you, like I, I think, largely dismiss polls, particularly public polls, but when you look at with enough relish. of them... With relish. But when you look at enough of them, you know, patterns emerge. And what's pretty clear is we're already starting to see what generally happens in primaries, which is the early states begin to behave a little bit more differently in polls than the national polls, just because that's where the election's happening. And so there's now multiple polls that have you guys leading in Iowa. I think there was one this week had you leading in New Hampshire for the first time. Do you think it's fair to say, at least in the early stage, which obviously, of course, um, are incredibly important, you guys are now the front runner of the Democratic race? I think the polls, as you said, are are difficult. And I, I actually think at this stage in the process, the, the horse race question isn't isn't necessarily even the right one. And so what we see at our events, at other candidate events, and at uh, big functions like the, the steak fry in Iowa just this uh, past uh, few days, is that even, the, even folks wearing a t-shirt for a candidate have questions for the other candidates because they're considering multiple candidates. And so the questions that I think are material at this, at this stage still are around who are you considering? And some people just say one and they're all in and they're volunteering for us or for somebody else. But quite a lot of people are considering uh, two, three, four candidates. And so when you think about what does your support look like out there, there, there's the subset of people like we, we need to recruit in to be precinct captains, to be volunteers who lead the work and, and do the work. But when you're looking at the broader uh, electorate, it is about in whose consideration set are you? And on the flip side of that is also who would be disappointed if you're the nominee. And what we see across different surveys, both in the early states and nationally, is that Elizabeth Warren is at the top of people's consideration set and the person that the, that the fewest number of people would be disappointed if she's the nominee. So when we get into the phase here where uh, it will be about uh, closing, right, uh, the deal with, with voters as, and, and caucus goers, you know, starting from the largest set of consideration is a good place to be. That was a very deft answer, Joe, to kind of not want to wear the hat as front runner. But it has been an interesting journey for you guys because, you know, look, you look back earlier in the year, you know, I think a lot of people questioned, you know, Warren from the beginning, you know, was the DNA test a mistake? Uh, you know, I remember there was, I think, New York Times stories and other journalists writing about your fundraising troubles. You go from that, 
where you could, you know, for a while kind of be off Broadway a little bit to now firmly on Broadway. And obviously, as you get closer to the early states, the intensity uh, increases. But that's particularly true for people who look like they could plausibly win. Do you, do you think that's going to change your race at all, or at least in terms of how it's covered? I don't think it's going to change our race. We're doing the same thing that we've been doing since December 31st when she announced. If you look back at the at the video that she put out on that very first day, all of the components of her message that she'll be delivering this evening at a, at a town hall in Keene, New Hampshire are there. Um, and the organization is there as well to focus on grassroots and, and all that. I think the coverage obviously is going to uh, swing and shift, but our job is to build an organization that is a kind of mooring in the tempest of the coverage and, and the news and whatever else is going on so that we have a resilient set of people who understand uh, what she's about, what she wants to be running on, what, how, what kind of president she's going to be, but also what all of our role and frankly, the big grassroots movement that we're building's role is going to be both in delivering the nomination and the election, as well as in making the change happen afterwards, because that's a key part of the kind of president that she wants to be, uh, as well as the kind of campaign that we think is going to be necessary to win. You're building that organization to ultimately, you said if you're successful, it's to bring about change when she's in the White House. But more narrowly in the near term here, it's to actually produce votes in caucus attenders. Let's talk about Iowa a little bit. I actually had an interesting conversation with Greg Schultz, Last week, the the manager of the Biden campaign, we talked a little bit about what we might expect from a turnout standpoint. Do you guys have a sense yet of where you think turnout could go in the Iowa caucuses? And also, what do you think the win number is? What What is the winner of the Iowa caucuses going to have to get numerically? I think that the turnout's going to be high. I think it's going to be north of, of even where we were in, in 2008. I think the win number is going to be highly dependent on how many candidates are still in the race. And I think given the variability of people's fundraising results, we just don't know what that's going to look like yet. People haven't really begun to spend money there, but also different candidates with their different fundraising approaches are not necessarily going to be able to meet uh, the expectations that they're going to even really be there and competing. And so you start to see some folks backsliding to, well, we don't need to really, we just need to place, we can go on and fight another day and that kind of stuff. So I think the win number is going to be variable depending on who's there, but we're planning for and building an organization for a significant turnout, uh, both in Iowa and, and the rest of the early states. So you mentioned early in our conversation, one of Elizabeth Warren's strengths is that when you look at who might be someone's second choice, even if they're currently supporting a candidate, she ranks high. So my question now is, you know, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, Elizabeth Warren's vote share, at least in polls, it, that has to materialize in vote, has grown. And so, you know, maybe into the, the, the low 20s in some states, even mid-20s. So in terms of that journey in the beginning to get from where you are now, let's just assume that's all hard support, into, let's say, the high 30s or 40s. Does that come, does more of that come from if Bernie Sanders erodes more? Um, does that come from, as you said, a bunch of candidates drop out and you're in position to pick up a lot of that support? Is it new voters? I'm just curious what your theory, because I think that's a really important question, which is you always want to look at kind of what your ceiling is and, and how do you get there? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. One of the interesting things that we see both, you know, in the public polling numbers that we both take with a, a massive grain of, of salt, uh, but also in the real data, which is new this cycle, is for all of the different candidates' grassroots fundraising to be put out there on a granular level from from the ActBlue reports. This is the first time all the leading candidates are using ActBlue, um, and because of the way they're structured. Every donation, even five, ten dollars, is um, reported in detail to the FEC. Whereas 
you know, back in 2008 or 2012 uh, or 2016, you know, candidates um, who are not using ActBlue would only be reporting folks who are aggregating up to $200. And so there was always this kind of big black box of the grassroots uh, fundraising data underneath what was reported to the uh, FEC. Because we're in this primary and everybody's using the same system and it's all getting reported out, you can actually see that a culture has developed in this crowded field of people giving to multiple candidates. And so you can see the moments when people are uh, are giving to various candidates. You can see them uh, sort of start giving one and to one and then uh, leaving and, and sort of settling with another. Uh, but you can also see people ping-ponging back and forth. And so what you see when you look at all of that data is that Elizabeth Warren is the person most likely to be in common with another candidate um, in terms of a grassroots donation. So uh, if you imagine all of the grassroots donations as a big Venn diagram, our circle is quite big and also has the most overlap of anyone. And so that's something that is a, a useful just in terms of raw data. It's, it's millions of donations uh, from the most active people who are paying the most attention. Now, obviously, there's a um, an economic slice uh, and a, a demographic slice to that that donor data. Um, and it's not it's not representative of the of the primary electorate across the early states, but it, it gives you a sense of how people are experiencing the shopping part of the race. And so to be in a place where you are taking a significant portion from all of the different candidates in the race, you're not just downstream from one or the other or a certain cluster of them, that feels like a good place to be when a candidate field is going to narrow from two dozen down to a dozen down to a half a dozen. Yeah, that's a big change in the race and a hell of a lot more actionable data than, you know, public poll numbers uh, suggesting where people are going to fall. So that's something definitely to keep an eye on. So, you know, we're here at the end of September, a lot can change. But as it stands now, you know, my view would be of the four first states, the one that looks like the toughest road for you right now as we sit is South Carolina. How important it is for you guys to, whether you win or not, show that you can get the kind of support from the African-American community, both to suggest that as you get into the larger states in, in March, where most of the country is going to vote, that you'll, you can put up the kind of performance to yield the kind of delegates to win the nomination, but also, you know, to show that you can create the kind of enthusiasm we'll need to beat Trump. Yeah, we feel good about it. We're building uh, a campaign that's across the early states, but also everywhere to go organize in every in every part of the Democratic coalition. What we see is that folks who have an opinion and have heard of Elizabeth Warren tend to have a favorable opinion and like her. Um, what we also see is that people of color are disproportionately likely to not have heard of and not have an opinion about uh, Elizabeth Warren. So not just that we have, there's a difference between us and, for instance, Biden and Sanders, who've run national campaigns before and have a uh, very high name ID and, and people have fixed opinions about, but especially among people of color, uh, African-Americans in particular, just the have heard of, have an opinion about is higher than um, than even um, white voters in the, in the same place and at the same state in the race. So that means we have work to do in terms of organizing, uh, in terms of our uh, media planning and spending. But what we know is that when people pop out of the don't know, don't have an opinion of, uh, haven't heard of category, they tend to fall uh, disproportionately in our favor and feel good about the message of uh, taking on the corruption and, and helping deliver a government that puts more power in the hands of, of people. So your campaign put out a memo yesterday. You talked about some of the advertising you're intensifying. I want to come back to that later in our discussion. But you also talked about some of the organization you're starting to deploy in the March states. You know, and I think you and I have been through this. I mean, the early states, in a way, 
seem almost sleepy, right? As hard as they are. It's like one state after the other. And then all of a sudden, most of the country's voting. It's, it's a pretty intense experience. So you guys are planning for that. So I assume you have given some thought to this, not that you have a lot of control over this. But as you think about post-South Carolina, assuming Elizabeth Warren's done what she needs to, to, you know, get the chance to continue to compete, you know, would you rather see that as like a one-on-one with Biden if he's still strong? Would you rather see it with Biden and an African-American candidate like Harris, how important it is, you know, that Sanders not be at strength? Again, I'm not necessarily asking you to criticize any candidate or or what they may or might not do, but as you think about um, how the chips fall after South Carolina, do you guys have a sense of what you'd like the field to look like to give you the best chance to win? To be honest, I our strategy is that we can't have a fixed preference on that because we're not in control of it. So mm-hmm. the thing that we're trying to do in those later states is to build an enthusiastic, very committed, grassroots volunteer base that take responsibility for the campaign locally and get out ahead of not only every other campaign's organization, but also our own organization in terms of our ability to put staff on the ground and, and uh, bring media in behind it. So... I think other campaigns are going to have their own strengths and, and strategies, but you and I know from the period in, in 2007 and the first part of 2008 is that when we started rolling staff into those later states after the early states, our fo- you know the staff would hit the ground and the grassroots volunteers uh, for Obama, you know, they already had their regional organizations set up in some of those states. They already had the per, you know, you drop into a town and like, they're, oh, here's the volunteer who is the basically the field director. Here's the volunteer who has the outreach to the mayor's staff. Here's the volunteer who's a publicist and actually knows all the local reporters. Like the staff were able to plug into a grassroots organization that was very seasoned and had been working together, um, and that was that was a a product of an enthusiastic grassroots base for the candidate, but also an organization, as you know, because you let it, that um, that put them in the driver's seat in those places and said, please take responsibility for this campaign. Here's how we're going to win, and you have to be at the center of it. And that's the thread that runs through that Obama 0708 campaign. There are a few of us in Warren land. The other a big one is, is Emily Parcell, who was in Iowa for us and is in charge of all of our state programs now for Warren. And that that notion of the role of grassroots organization as a real component, not underneath the muckety-muck professional staff, but rather that is the organization and where the staff are in service of it. That's something that runs right from our organization back in 0708 to the Warren campaign now. I think Emily Parcell should strike fear in the heart of your opponents, my friend. <laughs> she, she has is, been since uh, the first week of the campaign. Yeah, <laughs> she's, a, she's a secret weapon. So as you guys think about that period really from March to June, are you operating under the assumption that one candidate can get the majority of the 1990 pledge delegates? Or is there a scenario where you think, even if there's a clear leader, no one's going to have the majority, and so we are going to have to have some you know, dancing at the convention in Milwaukee? I think we have to plan for all the different scenarios. I think that if you roll the dice 100 times um, with all the different factors in here of of money, people's existing polling average, you know, people's credentials coming into the race, having run before, and all that means for their national political relationships, the solidity of their base and whether they're willing to consider other candidates. There's just a lot of different ways that this can play out. But between those two scenarios that you mentioned of somebody having a majority and somebody and and it being clear that nobody does and there's dancing at the convention, there's the does someone get out into a lead that unless there are dramatic lopsided results in the back half of the calendar, 
is going to persist, that feels like where a lot of those of those dice rolls would would come out. And so that's going to be one of these moments where, you know, there will be people in in denial about the math of that, you know, or saying, well, if we just win this type of state, it's a type of state that in the general election you need to win, you know, and we know we've been through that movie before. But I, I think those those ca- campaigns focused on the delegate accumulation and building the organization to deliver the margin. What we know about this process is that you can deliver a margin of delegates even beyond your support. So it's great to be in first place if you are going into a particular state or into a particular contest. But based on how you spend your money and spend your organizational time, uh, you can deliver a margin beyond what that top line support is. And that's the type of campaign that delivered the nomination for Obama in 08 when we were there, but uh, is also the type of organization that that Emily Parcell and, and the rest of the state's team are building for Warren. I want to tell you about another new podcast called America Dissected. America Dissected is a 10-part series that explores what we're up against in our healthcare system and how we've solved problems like this before through rigorous science and competent government, working hand in glove, getting it done. Doctor and former Detroit health director Abdul El-Sayed dissects the stories behind the headlines and looking at them through the lens of public health in Crooked Media's new 10-episode series, America Dissected, with Abdul El-Sayed. Topics that will be explored on the podcast, anti-vaxxers, the cult of wellness, the high cost of prescription drugs, the Flint water crisis, the opioid epidemic, antibiotic resistance and superbugs, and the healthcare system more generally. America Dissected with Abdul Al-Sayed is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Subscribe now. It'd probably be interesting for folks listening to this to get a sense from you. What advantage does it give you not having to do all the in-person fundraisers, particularly on the coast? So for those of you that don't know, Elizabeth Warren announced a long time ago she was not going to do the traditional fundraisers in Beverly Hills or in Manhattan where people are writing, you know, two, three thousand dollar checks, try and raise all that, you know, online and through the grassroots. So sort of thinking very tactical in the campaign, what are the things you can do that you're freed up from not having that burden? Yeah. So I think there are two different advantages to it. One is just the time, right? When you go back and look at what the schedules in, in competitive primaries have been for candidates especially when you're not like the president running for re-election is, you know, raising into the whole party apparatus. And um, it's a different kind of ball game than going and running around and spending a third, half, two thirds in some cases of your time collecting $2,800 at a time. Um, and so she can spend more time in the early states, more time in other places. She's been to the Mississippi Delta to talk about housing. She's been out to Utah to talk about public lands. She's held town halls in places like Kermit, West Virginia, to talk about the opioid crisis, where, you know, it's a different kind of crowd there than our uh, rally in Washington Square Park uh, in New York. But there's a lot of standing ovations for uh, holding pharmaceutical executives accountable and for raising the minimum wage and a lot of hugs and selfies at the end of that, the firehouse in Kermit as well. So to be able to go to those places uh, from a message strategic standpoint, but also from a delegate strategic standpoint is great. The other thing, though, about it is that it gives you a different kind of diet of incoming uh, to the campaign organization and to the candidate. And so 
I don't know what the examples are in this particular cycle, but it can't be good for a candidate to be spending a third, two thirds of their time taking incoming from a donor class that is disproportionately old, white, rich, and male. And, you know, with even well-intentioned donors having political takes that are either distracting or just bad takes coming at the candidate, coming at the staff, and, and having to be responded to by the organization to chase down this policy pet project and that particular initiative to either hire somebody or reach out to somebody or make, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so uh, as we're building a campaign that tries to model the politics that we want to see in terms of how candidates should build and fund their campaigns, it's also something that's been you know, very good in terms of how the staff spends their time, what they think about, what they worry about or don't worry about when they're making decisions about policy plans, about risks to take politically, uh, and the rest. And so our candidate winds up spending hours in line taking selfies with folks who come up and say something really personal, important to her. And that's the data that she's taking in. And she's more in touch than than any of us, no matter how much data we look at or uh, results we read or, or uh, stuff we're consuming coming in from uh, the field or, or the website or anything else. She has a personal interaction with people who have been standing in line in some cases for a couple hours thinking about what the most important thing they need to tell her is. And there's something that's just really priceless about that. I mean, that's a great point, really, for since the beginning of my long and sordid history in politics, I mean, that's been a challenge with candidates. No matter how well-meaning the donors are, and most of them are, they are pretty far away from a swing voter in a general election or somebody that, you know, is at risk of not voting. So the fact that you guys don't have to filter that out uh, is incredibly important. Let's talk about those selfies. That's a way you guys are using all the extra time that you've uh, gained by not having to do fundraisers. So obviously, I think it's a great narrative. I thought her answer last week after the Washington Square Park event about the person who had to stand in line for four hours was great. She said, well, um, you know, they were standing in line for four hours too, not just me. What is the value of that aside from the, the narrative? And clearly, it's just something she wanted to do. I mean, is your view that, you know, in, in Washington Square Park, you have, you know, thousands and thousands of people leaving that event with their picture, they share it on their own social media channels. Like, what's your view of the benefit of that tactically? I know there's a romance to it, but tactically, how does it help the campaign? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that it came even before the campaign. It was it came out of Massachusetts and her activities there, just staying in touch with her constituents. And that it's not just something she wanted to do. It's at her town halls afterwards, it, like at any other political event, there's a rope line. And so she would come down to talk to people. And who's on the rope line? Well, it's the local muckety-muck officials. It's the big donors who, you know, have the special seat. Or it's the, you know, local party person who's, you know, who, who already knows her and all this sort of stuff. And who's not at the rope line is people with disabilities, people who aren't that close to the political process, who maybe this was their first event and they don't know what's going on with that scrum. There's children, there's um, folks who have difficulty getting around. And that struck her as a dumb way to do things and something that was not fair and not what our democracy ought to look like. And so this system of doing a selfie with anybody who wants to stay lends both order to the event, but also a kind of equality across uh, anybody who wants to come in a way that's that's meaningful in in a real way. And and it's related to, and I just want to take a second here, because it's also related to the way that um, she takes questions at these town halls, and she's taken thousands of these questions, and it's not whoever raises their hand and shouts uh, the most. It's not whoever uh, wins the race to the microphone in the aisle. It's folks who have a question take a ticket on the way in, and then the ticket's put in a bowl, and, and whoever's hosting the event, or in some cases her grandson, 
who attends some of these events, pulls the tickets out, and those are the questions that get asked. And let me tell you, it is remarkable. Everything that you hate about a local civic meeting and the people who are running to the microphone and shouting and, and all that, and the things that repel people from the kind of civic event where it feels like there's something else going on than just ordinary participation, it's completely different at these events. And the t- types of questions you get are personal, are variable, and really meaningful. And so both the question, the way that the questions happen uh, and, the, and the way the selfie line goes down are part of how she thinks politics ought to be and what we're trying to build with the campaign. So I think that's, you know, there's something really meaningful there. In terms of the, the tactical impact of the, um, of the selfie line, it's, it's great. It's not just the exposure that people give to the, the photos of themselves with the candidate. Obviously, if you put that in your feed, a lot of people see it. But there's also something about the person posting it. It's about the act of posting it and what that does and what that cements in your own self and sense of responsibility and investment of your reputation in the campaign uh, that it makes you more likely to do something like make a donation, volunteer later, and critically, even more than both of those things, have a conversation that's meaningful and validated by your relationship with somebody that you know on behalf of the campaign. And so, yeah, it's great for people to like see it and scroll by and see their friends, but the fact that their friend posted it means that they are now on notice as the person to ask about Elizabeth Warren, uh, ask about this plan, ask about how to get involved. And that's a big big, big part of the impact of those selfies. Right. That's fascinating. So you mentioned all the questions, both at the town halls and on the selfie lines. I don't know how many questions he's getting along these lines at those events, but certainly amongst political reporters, there's a sense that, you know, the debates have been pretty strong for Warren, but questions about how transparent she's being. And, you know, she has a reputation as a straight shooter around how she paid for health care plans. So I understand she wants to take that question to listen, the benefits for working people, middle class, the net benefit's going to be um, positive. You know, you're going to ultimately pay less for health care. Do you think you guys are going to have to be a little bit more specific, though, about how you pay for it, no matter what the net benefit is on the other side? So I think her answers on this, uh, you know, are around the overall cost for, for middle class families and what it's going to be. I think that the question of the pay for is there's a lot of detail still to be filled in in terms of both Bernie's bill that's out there, um, but also the other versions of it. Other candidates have their specific plans. So I think I think there'll be more uh, for that. But I, I think it's important to note that the the overall cost question is, is not just where she wants to be placing emphasis, but it's also uh, where voters understand the, the fault line to be. So I think there's a there's a kind of disingenuousness to the well. Let's talk about let's talk about taxes. Uh, part of it, but the reality is that the overall cost for middle class families is going to go down. Uh, the health insurance companies are going to stop extracting uh, tens of billions of dollars in profit from the system, and the wealthy and big corporations are going to pay more uh, and pay their fair share to help close the gap. But overall, the the program of Medicare for all is is cheaper uh, and less wasteful than than the current system, and that's something that people get in the first eight seconds of the conversation, uh, whether it's at the door or at a town hall or on the debate stage. Do you think, and I talked to Greg Schultz about this last week, do you think that, you know, particularly as the race intensifies, um, you know, as you get closer to Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and Nevada, and South Carolina, do you think the battle around health care, whether that's in your advertising or your town halls, certainly still in the debate stage, do you think that's continued to be kind of a major fault line and, and a driver in the race? 
I think it's a difference between some of the candidates, but I don't think it's necessarily the biggest difference um, between all the candidates in terms of their approach uh, to how to be a Democratic nominee and how to run the general election, but also how they'll govern as, as president. And so I think her stump speech, her answers at the debate, the campaign communications and paid media are largely focused on her core message of rooting out corruption and putting economic and political power back in the hands of the people. And that's something that is directly related to the problems with our healthcare system. Like why, you know, why, why do the pharmaceutical companies have the seat at the table that they do in DC uh, is directly related to the corruption and the campaign finance system. And so that's something that you know, runs through every issue that people bring up. And so what, what we find is that no matter what issue people come up with uh, to her at, in the selfie line or at a town hall where they're asking a question um, or who are talking to our volunteers at the door, linking it back to the root of who does Washington work for uh, and the corruption that has been going on for a long time and which Donald Trump is, is a and maybe the worst symptom of, but has been going on for a long time. People viscerally understand that and, and want to do something about it uh, and understand how it connects to all the issues. So you guys have intensified your corruption message. I mean, that's been part of her message all along, but it seems like in the last weeks, and maybe this, you know, uh, Ukraine bombshell feeds into that. Is that something that you view as kind of the best through line for you from primary to general, from I, an issue standpoint? I think it's both a through line for the primary in general, but it's also a way to understand how she came to politics because she saw in her studying how middle-class families go broke that the banks and the credit card companies had the line in to the politicians in Washington and that every time all of the Republicans were on the other side and sometimes half the Democrats were too. And so that's how she got involved in these fights, you know, with Ted Kennedy, with Paul Wellstone uh, and, and Harry Reid and became uh, an expert who helped try to shape the laws and that, you know, you win some, you lose some, but that's what shaped her understanding of how politics works. And that's what we can see at the root of so many different issues, um, whether it's climate change and the petroleum uh, and fossil fuel industry, whether it's the healthcare company, health insurance companies and prescription drug conglomerates on healthcare, uh, whether it's the gun companies and, and their vehicle, the NRA, controlling the debate and the whole of the Republican leadership. That's something that runs through everybody's uh, specific issue that they care most about. But like again, it, it's it's also for us, something that that helps people understand her story and how she came to politics. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that you are not using traditional political consultants in your campaign. And I think, you know, maybe to the average listener who's not worked in politics, that may seem like sausage making. You can or you cannot. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about why you made that decision, why you think it gives you guys an advantage. And I'd be curious, since you're building an in-house creative team, where are those people coming from? Um, you know, is it all private sector? Is it politics? Is it a blend? Yeah, it's a, it is a blend. Um, and one of the things that's great about it is that uh, it's folks bring lots of different experience in presidential politics, but also from nonprofit uh, world advocacy from the movement side of our party. And they bring a different set of viewpoints, but also it means that we're able to create a really diverse team. And I'm self-conscious here that, you know, you're a, a white male and I'm a white male uh, having this conversation. And the Part of the benefit and the living our value side of the Warren campaign is building a team of people who are uh, diverse, 
with a, a disproportionate group of women, of people of color, um, who are getting this experience of running this campaign in a different way, but giving a lot of people opportunities that they wouldn't necessarily got if we kept perpetuating the same type of system. And so, you know, when we're running for re-election, when we're sitting here having a podcast as uh, the second term of President Warren is winding down, I'm hopeful that the folks on both ends of this microphone won't be won't be white guys and won't be and won't be us. Um, and so I think that's one of the things about leaving the political process better off than how we found it. That's at the heart of the campaign. Here, here. So you obviously are a digital innovator going all the way back to 2004. You know, you mentioned the ActBlue data, and that's a new tool available to campaigns to assess potential supporters. Uh, maybe you won't share all your secret sauce, but I, I'd be curious, particularly given your background, where you either currently are deploying or see in the general election, you know, the next iteration in terms of technology and data. And also, I'm curious if you see thing any on, anything on the Trump side right now um, that gives you pause in terms of them sort of leapfrogging where we are. Well, the the biggest thing that gives me pause on the Trump side is his active solicitation of foreign intervention in the election. And so if we, this is the one call that we know about and that there's a whistleblower complaint about who knows what all the other calls from him or, or Rudy Giuliani or his various other operatives are making. So that's of grave concern, and that's a big reason why we hope not just that the impeachment process proceeds, but that the Republicans um, in the Senate wake up to the gravity of the situation and, and pick up the bill that already passed the House to help uh, states and localities protect their elections from foreign interference, especially cyber. So that's that's one big piece of it. The other piece is just that these tech companies, you know, I, I think they have woken up a bit uh, to the role that their inaction has played in in the shape of our discourse and the and the function of our democracy. But I think there's a long way to go. What we're trying to focus on for us is to make sure that we're able to use the tools that we can that we can have in house, but also the platforms that are available from a paid media perspective or uh, social media from a, uh, from an earned perspective that we're getting to people and reaching the folks who are supporters and potential supporters however we can. But there's no special tool that's going to deliver the margin here. I think this is a campaign, especially as people you know tune out from traditional uh, advertising, as people frankly get sick of politics, depending on what, what's going on in the news that the development of a of a cohort of supporters who are all in with their whole selves and earnest about that involvement and passionate about uh, a positive version of politics that has a little bit of joy in it um, is something that's infectious and will and will channel through all the ways that people connect with each other in the political process but especially offline in person at school, at work, in the dorms, uh, in the neighborhood, in the apartment building, at the grocery store. Um, and that's that's what we're banking on. So it's a bit of a, an analog answer from someone who comes from digital, but um, that, that root of community organizing and real human connection to people's stories about why they're in this, that's at the heart of, of how we won in 2008, despite you know all of our, our various digital and, and technological uh, innovation. And it's a, it's at the heart of why Elizabeth Warren connects with, with people and how the people who support her are connecting with each other. Right. So let's continue uh, down the analog trail a little bit. So your campaign, uh, this time Elizabeth Warren, has been very much digital and social media first. That's your background and orientation. Yet you guys did announce yesterday, you know, you're going to spend a pretty significant amount of money on traditional television in the early states. I think it, one of the things that strikes me is Really, almost every day, someone asks me why anyone in politics would ever buy another buy another TV ad. Um, and of course, we want to spend more and more on digital, but we have to kind of go where voters are. So I think it might be interesting 
given your background, to explain to people why you still think you need to spend some money on traditional television advertising. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's useful to be absolutist or ideological about it, right? And so to say uh, even one ad is, is sort of an extreme uh, side of it. What you're trying to do is to reach people where they are and then also at a cost that's most efficient, right? And so there are certain points where you're trying to reach an audience and where the cost curve makes sense to, to do something on broadcast, on cable. Um, in other cases, you know, where you can have something addressable to people who you know where they are, you know they're from the voter file, their their history of voting. If you can do that digitally and and have some assurance and, and additional measurement to it, that's great too. But it's all about not just the media buy, but also but the organizational footprint, the mail, <laughs> the the telemarketing, how we uh, prioritize lists for our grassroots volunteers to phone bank through. All of that is in a grid of how cost-effective is it to re to reliably and measurably reach a person. And so sometimes that's going to be uh, find people who are supporters in their neighborhood and send them turf, <laughs> right? Uh, in other cases, that's going to be uh, let's go up on on television. But again, the the focus of having a grassroots campaign where you know there aren't these big finance events uh, and there's no uh, cavalry of millions and tens of millions of dollars from you know, wealthy people coming. It focuses your mind on making sure that the $10 and $20 that people are chipping in gets used most efficiently. Right. So I know you've got your nose down trying to win the nomination, but you know the big event comes after that. And certainly my view is we shouldn't assume anything happens to Trump through uh, conviction in the Senate. We're not going to run. He's, he's going to be our opponent and he's going to drive enormous turnout and I think be difficult to beat. So, But you've been, you've been through a couple of these general elections. As you think about the Electoral College... If Elizabeth Warren is faced uh, facing off with Donald Trump, what do you think those core battleground states look like? And are there any uh, potential battlegrounds, or, or maybe just core battlegrounds, where you think her message or her background, uh, you know, make her may make her uniquely strong? Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to make any any news here, but I think we start with a good uh, view of the electoral college, but also the Senate races that that need to be delivered. And so for us, the the overlap there is is meaningful and material to how you invest in building the organization, both in the primary and in the general. And so if you're not uh, running to win Senate races in Arizona and Maine and Georgia and Colorado, like you're not serious about governing uh, once you're president. And so that's, we need to eliminate the filibuster uh, and we need a democratic majority in the Senate to deliver the type of change that all of the candidates are, are running on. So that's part of the, the calculation here. But we feel good about our grassroots support in, in a lot of states. And I think the biggest factor, both in, in 2016 and, and 2018, in these close races, you know, you can talk about uh, the type of candidate, you can talk about the nature of, of the campaign that they ran with these issues or that issues. But the single biggest factor we all know in, in all these states is voter suppression and, and the state of the, the state of play uh, in the laws that Republican uh, governors and state legislators have put in place to, let's be very clear, stop poor people and people of color from voting uh, in elections in order to preserve minority rule. And it's right there in plain sight in places like North Carolina and Wisconsin. Um, and so in some cases, the Democrats have taken control uh, and been able to roll some of these back to increase participation in the electoral process. In other cases, uh, it's being challenged in the courts and, and voter suppression laws are getting chucked out. Um, but that's something that that's the one hand tied behind our back that Democrats up and down the ticket have. And the solution to which is only to build a big, inclusive 
multiracial populist grassroots campaign that people are excited about, uh, not just voting uh, for, but participating in in a meaningful way to help deliver the extra margins that you need to overcome a system that's been rigged. Right. You know, you've talked about your belief that Warren can build a broad coalition, have the kind of passion to build a, a large organization to help with things like registration and turnout. Do you think potentially that means um, states like Texas and Georgia could be in play? And, and what's your guys' view of Florida? Again, I know you're focused on the nomination, but as you gaze down the, the field occasionally at midnight, what's your thoughts about those states? Look, I think at this stage in the process, yeah, obviously we're focused on the nomination, but we're especially focused on building the organization in places where um, there are also Senate races, and so obviously double for Georgia. Um, but in the general election, you know, we're going to see where we are. If we're the nominee, we're going to see what the state of our grassroots organization looks like, what the state of our um, staff looks like on the ground, what kind of contests we have gone through. I, I know we both remember how unpleasant um, the the 57 contests of, of 2008 were, but that meant that we left, we created real grassroots organization in states that we wouldn't have had, you know, we swept the board in the early states and, and closed the door on, on February 5th. So we had a campaign in Indiana. Uh, we had a campaign in North Carolina. We had a campaign in places like Colorado and Arizona um, that was meaningful and material to what we were building for, for a general election. So a lot's going to change between here and um, standing on the stage at the convention. But the state of the grassroots campaign for whoever the nominee is being strong and having not just gone through and fought a competitive grassroots race, but built something and not torn it down um, after you go through those contests, I think is going to be a meaningful, real uh, factor in the general election for, for the Democrats. It was hard to see the silver lining when we were going through all those contests, but but I think you're right. In, in retrospect, it helped us win. Um, so in 2012, you were uh, helping Barack Obama win a second term. Um, so you weren't involved, at least as far as I know, in, in the Warren Senate race. But you know, there's been some data, I think, that's been looked at that shows in 12, um, Scott Brown was obviously a very skilled and popular politician. He had won that Senate race in 2010. Obama won, uh, you know, Massachusetts comfortably, as you'd expect, but he did run against Mitt Romney, a former governor there. And there was a pretty significant delta between Warren's margin and Obama's margin. Um, do you have any view if that should portend any concerns about the general election, or is that sort of an overwrought observation that's being made out there? I mean, I think the takeaway from 2012 is that a first-time candidate beat a popular incumbent Republican, and the current incumbent Republican ain't that popular. So I think that she's someone who came to politics not as somebody who's been in, you know, running for office uh, for 50 years, but she knows what she believes, she knows why she's in it, and she's going to fight like hell to, to get it done. Um, when you look at 2012 or 2018 um, in Massachusetts, it's weird because the resources that the presidential campaign deploys there are different than a competitive Senate race. Um, and same thing in, in 18, you know, we, her, I worked with her on, on her reelection, didn't run a single uh, television ad at all. And she raised or gave away uh, more than $11 million to other uh, Democratic campaigns and to state parties and to party committees while she was in cycle and running and on the ballot, um, which is not the usual thing that that someone does, but because the Republicans uh, nominated Donald Trump's uh, campaign chair uh, from Massachusetts on the other side, um, she was able to both do that $11 million raised or, or given away to help the rest of the ticket up and down the ballot in other states, uh, as well as get to 60% uh, comfortably in, in Massachusetts. So, you know, I'm not sure there's too much to draw other than that 
she can go beat a Republican incumbent, and she's invested in helping elect Democrats up and down the ticket everywhere. And those are two things we intend to do next year. Well, Joe, that's a very confident, I think, answer to that question. I think you've laid out during our discussion, you know, where you see a lot of Elizabeth Warren's strengths, both as uh, in this primary process, but in the general election. I'm curious. So if, if Elizabeth Warren is not the person accepting her party's nomination in Milwaukee, what's gone wrong? You know, why do you think that might not happen? You know, it'll be because we let her down when we let the grassroots campaign. And by say I, we, I mean the campaign staff and the, and the people who are making decisions around budget and resource allocation and which people to hire and how to build this thing. You know, I think they're obviously your, your listenership is um, especially aware of this, but I, I know you in particular are aware of just how much compounding uh, effect the leadership and organizational and financial decisions a campaign compound to over, over time. Uh, and so I, I believe she's the right candidate for this moment in time uh, for our party and for the country. I believe her agenda is the thing um, that needs to happen. I believe that the the spark I see uh, in the eyes of the people who uh, follow her on Instagram or come out to our events uh, and stand in the selfie lines is, is real and meaningful and scalable. Um, and so if she's not standing there, it'll be because uh, some group of us have, have done have done a bad job. Um, and every day, that's what I wake up worried about and, and seeking to uh, to head off of the pass and uh, fall asleep worried about uh, at night. But I believe that she's the right uh, for us. And I believe that the, the grassroots uh, movement that we're building is, is real and, and powerful. And uh, I'm just absolutely desperate to get it right and to and to serve it and um, build a, a team of staff and um, and and super volunteers around the country to to support it and, and help it build something that's going to deliver the delegates uh, to win the nomination and then deliver uh, not just the states to win the presidency but uh, the states to uh, give president Warren the Senate that she's going to need to do all of the big structural change that that she's run on and ha- and will have a mandate for you're right man the pressure is pretty intense which makes me last question Joe for you given that the pressure that you feel, and you know, you've been through a bunch of these now. What made you decide you wanted to go through this again, another presidential campaign? Let's start with that I wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I sat um, with my wife after 2016, and we knew we needed to be involved. I thought thought in 2016 that I, you know, I I, I wasn't as closely involved in, in the 2016 campaign in the primary or the general as I was in in 2004 and, and 8 and 12, and thought I was sort of done with that phase. I had gotten married and um, we bought a house and we're ready to, to start a family. Um, but after 2016, you know, it was obviously a, a different a different track for all of us. So um, my wife and I were decided and, and were pretty clear that we would do whatever we could, um, both in 2018 and, and then in the 2020 cycle. So got to leave it all on the field. We have a daughter now named Frankie, and she's at the event uh, in Washington Square Park last week. Um, that was the first time she's blown through bedtime and she was there. <laughs> she can't count to two, but she was chanting two cents, two cents with everybody else uh, in the park. And uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, stood there and gave a, a speech uh, about her theory of leadership of uh, somebody strong and relentless fighting on the inside and a big grassroots movement uh, pounding on the system from the outside. And the example of, of Francis Perkins 
and as the moral, Karis uh, Perkins as the moral force behind the New Deal uh, and all of uh, the big structural change that that was demonstrated to be possible then. And you know, Frankie's name is Francis uh, after Francis Perkins. So we're really all in with this and uh, hope to uh, survive physically through the next year and a bit. But we're going to give it everything we have and really try to just honor the the energy that so many people bring to any kind of campaign, and not just with our campaign, but with all the candidates. Just the democracy uh, and the um, despite all of the nonsense and reasons to tune out and just go, you know, watch watch your baseball game or uh, do something else with your time. The energy that people are bringing into this campaign uh, for all the Democratic candidates is just so heartening to see. Um, and it's the opposite of a, of a president uh, doing crimes to, to try to rig the election in his favor. Um, and I, I have a lot of hope, but also a lot of confidence in our party and all of our candidates and campaigns to build something that is going to defeat it and beat it by enough to get around any funny business that the president tries to pull. Well, it sounds like Frankie may be a campaign organizer in the future. We'll all be working on a campaign she's leading. I can't wait. But uh, thanks for that. I think that's important for everybody listening, whether you're supporting Elizabeth Warren or one of the other candidates or not going to get super involved in the general election. The only way we're going to beat Trump is for all of us uh, really to devote uh, every minute uh, and every bit of our talent and time to the cause. So uh, just like Joe uh, decided to get back in the ring, I think everyone's going to have to get in the arena. So Joe Rosepars, thank you. Is I think going to be fascinating for folks to get uh, a little more detailed look into the Warren world uh, and your campaign. Uh, and your view of what your pathway is to the nomination. So so thanks for spending time with us and hang in there and, and survive the next few months. Thank you. I thought that was a fascinating conversation with Joe Rosepars. You know, first of all, they're putting a huge premium, even though he's a digital first leader and staff member uh, and their campaign has been offline organizing. And I think that that's going to be fascinating to see. I happen to believe in that. We'll see whether their theory uh, gets borne out as folks begin to cast votes in February. It was fascinating to hear some of the advantages they believe they have from not holding traditional fundraisers. So it probably is a common sense, uh, you know, I think view that, well, they gain some time back because they're not having to fly to Los Angeles and New York as much as some of the other candidates and some of the other cities where there's a lot of fundraisers. But it was fascinating for Joe to talk about the fact that Elizabeth Warren is not spending a lot of time with donors uh, and really spending more time with the average voter than most candidates, that he thinks that gives her an advantage because she's spending more time and hearing more directly from the folks who are going to determine both the, the primary and the general election. It was also fascinating to hear their confidence that as candidates drop out of the race, Warren will be a place for a lot of those voters to go. So she is, in their view, based on some of their fundraising data and some of the polling, someone who is a strong second choice for a lot of voters. And that's important because Warren has surged. I mean, in early states, if you believe the polls now in Iowa, New Hampshire, even in California, she's low 20s, mid 20s. And many of those states has become, you know, the leader modestly uh, with, with a small lead over Biden. But, you know, to win the nomination, she's going to have to figure out a way to get into the mid-30s, then the high-30s, and ultimately the, the high-40s, if not over 50. So I think that was a really important discussion to get a sense of, you know, is she at her ceiling now, or does Warren have the ability to grow uh, pretty dramatically from where she is now? And, and they seem to think that she does. I thought it was also interesting to hear 
them talking about, you know, the selfies and that the origin story of that, which goes all the way back to our Senate race, but also uh, some of the value that they see in that, you know, not just in terms of the virality of those posts when people take a picture, but they believe that when someone posts a picture of themselves with Warren, you know, that signals a level of commitment and, and may lock them in further to both voting for her and volunteering for her. So I, I thought it was a really interesting discussion. Warren right now, um, certainly I think you could argue is the front runner in the early states, uh, maybe with an exception of South Carolina, but certainly has, I think, reached the point where she and Biden have to be considered as co-favorites right now for the nomination. So it was good timing to have Joe on and go into a lot more detail about their strategy and their tactics and how they see this race unfolding. And, um, you know, if she is ends up being our nominee, uh, I think it's important for all of us as Democrats to get to know the campaign leadership and and have some sense of whether we think they would be able to mount a campaign to bring down, you know, the orange menace, Donald Trump. Well, thanks, everybody, uh, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Remember to uh, subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back to you next week with another fascinating conversation with Bernie Sanders' campaign manager.